And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, at long, long last, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Coochie Podcast! As we enter the fall season of 2021, which actually will begin only days after this podcast, um, I was going to say, do you have the same seasons in Australia we have here? Yes, except yours is not cold, it's becoming warmer. That's correct. We are moving out of, well, we are in spring. Yeah. Okay. And you know, we're faced with the beginnings of summer at some point, and then the general excoriation of the masses that lasts for half a year. But here's the thing. There's a cycle in American culture, which I assume is probably the same worldwide, uh, that the fall is the new season. It's the new season of television. It used to be the new season of movie rele- releases. Uh, it was the big uh, publishing season for pushing books that might become Christmas gifts later on. Yeah. I think that cycle has been broken down in a number of ways, and COVID certainly didn't help it. But I've noticed that in terms of, uh, of, of media science fiction, we have Dune to look forward to, and mm-hmm. I'm seeing TV ads for Foundation now, which looks like nothing I've ever seen <laughs> remotely in any of those novels. Well, okay, Foundation starts next Friday, right? Okay. Uh, from when we're recording. And because we're, we're recording on what the 19th and it's the 24th, I think it comes out. Something like that. Something like that. Um, and look, I've, I've, I think we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before. I feel for the people at Apple or, and I think it's Ronald Moore who are adapting uh, foundation because, you know, they're trying to make a big, long sweeping epic TV series with a, you know, based on books that don't really have much plot or much character right. and, and, and spread over a great period of time. So how do you structure an episodic television show to actually, um, to actually give you meaningful contact and that sense of time? So I believe they're going to like have characters to pop in and out through time as they, as they go along, but it'll be fascinating. But, you know, you're right. It, there, there is a publication, uh, schedule that, that we're all on or a you know an annual kind of thing and i mean to some degree that's international you mm. know in the last 20 years i think the, the 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 ability to hold stuff back around the world has gone away you can't have people waiting 12 months to get something just because they're somewhere else in the world which was very much the case when i was growing up so you know when the new movie or a new whatever they come at the same time we will get foundation i mean here it will be a spring release in mm-hmm. at the end of september and that's just how it is um, and everybody adapts to it. Books are a little bit different, but not that much because the same books come out at the same time. I mean, you know, I was at book shopping again, Gary. Uh, again. I bought the new Colson Whitehead book, uh, Harlem Shuffle, which is a 1960s noir novel. It which looks like great. a lot of fun. It, it, it looks like his version of a Walter Mosley novel. Funny we didn't have to read all this science fiction stuff that keeps getting in the way. Well, um, uh... Colson Whitehead not only has written science fiction, alternate history, and, and zombie fiction, so you can't really make that distinction anymore. Although I noticed in reviews of, I've read some reviews of Harlem Shuffle, and for that matter, the reviews of Underground Railway go to great lengths to kind of contort themselves to not admit that this is really genre fiction. He's clearly <laughs> writing a hard-boiled detective story with this one, from what I can tell of the plot. With Underground Railway, he pretty much knew he was writing an alternate history, and he was also writing a kind of time travel thing. And the zombie yeah. novel is a zombie novel. Uh, he, he and and dealing with books. big issues as well. I mean, I think yeah. the impression I get you know, is from, from what I've heard him say in an interview or two is this is him writing just a different kind of book. So it's, if you like, more fun for him to, you know, to, to write. Well, I think and, one of I mean, the things... Uh, go ahead, finish your thought. 
and ties in with other um, noir books we were talking a minute ago off the podcast about the new Sylvia Moreno Garcia book, uh, Velvet is the Night, which is another right. you know, great noir novel that's it's not a, really genre related, but is. Terrific novel. Well, I think what this is telling us is something that's going on from both sides of the culture divide, if it still exists. Because we've talked many times on the podcast about uh, speculative fiction writers. I don't like spec fic because it sounds, I don't know, it sounds like a medicine or something. But <laughs> writers of Fantastica, to use Kludstrom, uh, not paying much attention to the dividing line between fantasy and science fiction, between fantasy, science fiction, and horror, between science fiction, fantasy, horror, mainstream fiction, literary fiction, and so forth and so on. So this business of mixing genres or melting genres or hopping genres is something that we take pride in among our own tribe of writers. And if you look outside our little tribe of writers and look at the Colts from the Whiteheads of the world, or for that matter, the... Uh, Juno Diaz's of the world or uh, the Carmen Maria Machado's of the world, mainstream writers are doing the same thing. It's no longer an embarrassment to write a science fiction writer if you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. No, it's not. I mean, you might um, futz around the edges about calling it such or your publisher will. I mean, look at, say, Richard Powers' Bewilderment, which is up for the Booker this week. I mean, it's a science fiction novel, undeniably a science fiction novel. Mm -hmm. But, you know... It's not openly called so, even though he's pretty open about it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of attitude persists. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's made very from country to country. I mean, my sense is that uh, Murakami still tries to avoid the term of science fiction, uh, having you know, grown up in, in British literary culture. Uh, there was a famous issue with Margaret Atwood's difficulty with science fiction until Le Guin more or less helped straighten her outlet, shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, but by, yes. and large, by and large, I think of somebody who is uh, of Margaret Atwood's or, or Murakami's or Colson Whitehead's stature, wants to write a zombie novel or a science fiction novel or a mystery novel or a noir adventure uh, or a pirate novel. I think you can do that. And I think that's a good sign. I think it's a sign that the, 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 the genre boundaries, which I've claimed many times are evaporating, just to put a point, <laughs> are evaporating outside of the genre world as well. Maybe so. I mean, certainly there's a lot of general uh, churn in the cult, in, in global culture, which is most mostly a good thing, and which we're seeing in different ways in our genre. We're you know, we're seeing a much higher profile in the last handful of years for more diverse fiction from different parts of the world. We're seeing it represented by you know, stream, a stream of anthologies over, particularly after the, over the last ten years, introducing us to parts of China and Korea and uh, now to mm -hmm. Africa with titles coming out now. Um, which is very welcome, uh, but but also it's, it's interesting to sort of ponder, and maybe we'll come to this later. I don't know the, the question of how effective the anthology is as a injector of of ideas, of uh, a tool to change thought in 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 the genre. I mean, I feel like they tend to be internal to the field, kind of inoculations or treatments. But but I'd be curious to what you think. Oh, it's, it's interesting that you ask that because I was just writing up a bit. Uh, not specifically about your year's best, although it's in a review of your latest year's best, which is, I, I, I wrote this word down and I took it out, but I, you, I'll, let you, I'll let you puzzle over why I said this was sprightlier than last year's. Well, puzzle. Okay. puzzle over that. It's sprightly. But, but the thing is, I was thinking at the end, what, is, what, surface, what, what purpose does this anthology or, or Rich Hortons, or, or the uh, the Veronica Roth, J.J. Adams' Best American Science Fiction, 
what purpose do they serve today? And I started thinking back, okay, what purpose were they originally meant to serve? So I started thinking back to a little bit of the history of anthologies. The first year's best anthology was 1949. It was uh, Everett Blyler and Ted Dickney. Ted Dickney, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was uh, somewhere I have a copy of it even. And it was pretty clear that the four or five years they did those anthologies, this was an effort to present science fiction to the world in a number of ways. It was an attempt to present science fiction to New York publishers to show that this is a viable marketing category, that yep. you can sell these books. It was an attempt to present the magazine science fiction, the, uh, to, to extract it from the pulps and present it to uh, a wider readership to say, it's mm -hmm. okay to read this stuff because it's in books now. So in other words, this was simply establishing that science fiction is a thing. And then the second generation, I would argue, uh, is a generation of Judith Merrill and Terry Carr, where they didn't need to establish that science fiction was a market. It was, it was pretty much a market by the 50s and 60s, but they now wanted to show that it was literary, it was culturally important, it, had, uh, this, it, 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 it was respectable. So the first generation to show it's a market, the second generation to show it's literature, and you get to the third generation, uh, which is dominated by Gardner, and it's kind of a celebration. I mean, we're a big community. It can support big books. Uh, it can support a variety of books. Um, it can, with Gardner, his, his books were big enough that you could have your familiar old classic faces. So every one of Gardner's books, there'd be some old favorites in. There'd be some younger writers. Uh, yep. he, did, he, did a lot to, he did a lot to promote Greg Egan's career, for example. And yep. so that's, that's a celebration of the big ticket community of science fiction. But it wasn't as diverse a community as it could have been. Later in Gardner's anthologies, he began to recognize more diversity. But it wasn't the worldwide science fiction community it is now, which unfortunately or fortunately for those of you who get to do years best or need to do years best or are contractually obligated to do years best, you're now representing a worldwide cultural movement and not a market or a group of fans or um, a, a bunch of writers who want to be taken more seriously as literary figures. I get very cautious about being said so that those books are representing anything. Maybe a little bit they can be taken that way, but you want to be very cautious. Mm. Um, I'm interested in your interpretation of it, different generational iterations of years' best anthologies because mm. um, I can sort of see some of that. I mean, I think Gardner's, I mean, as a celebration, sure, but as a sitting back and relaxing within the enhanced space of science fiction. The science fiction market was big enough, the readership was big enough and growing that Gardner's books could be big and appeal to that audience and be successful. So right. it was like, almost like sitting down at a table with a after an enormous meal and, and sort of letting your belt out a notch and like, here's a big book with all of the stuff you need. And that could appeal to other people. But I think that it misses that, because uh, the year's best thing is one strain, but uh. there's these... Um, themed anthologies which are maybe regionally organized or language right. organized or whatever else and those ones strike me as something else they're the exact opposite i think of what you were suggesting hmm. the years best were i mean if you say that the dick d blyler books were a, an attempt to show to the world at large that uh science fiction was valuable uh, robust marketable all these kind of, hmm. kind of things surely the purpose of Books starting with, say, New, uh, England Swings SF through 
you know, um, say James Morrow's book of European SF up to the books that um, Ken Lewis done, uh, the books out of Korea, whatever else. Those are attempts to talk to the genre and tell you that this stuff is exists and is of merit and value. This is different arms of the genre talking it to itself, not to the world at large. I think that's true. I think. Uh, it's interesting. True, partly true. It's, it's interesting. There was an anthology uh, probably in the 60s uh, the Damonite edited the uh, French science fiction stories, and he was clearly trying to call attention to the fact that there was a science fiction tradition in France, even at that time, just as, as Jim Morrow was with his European Science Fiction Hall of Fame, I think it was called. Um, I don't think they really uh, had the influence they intended to have. I didn't, you, you didn't have a lot of interest after Damon Knight saying, you didn't have a lot of interest in French science fiction being translated other than a few bestsellers like uh, uh, Pierre Boulle or, or, or sure. Robert Merrill's uh, mm. apocalyptic novel. Uh, you didn't have a lot of interest in German science fiction, even after Andreas Eschbach was published with some fanfare by Tor back uh, maybe 15 or 20 years ago. Now it seems these, uh, these focused anthologies are beginning to have some impact. And I think they're beginning to have some impact because they're no longer outside looking in, by, by which I mean, uh, I don't think Ken Liu's anthologies are directed toward Chinese people who are automatically interested in science fiction. They're trying to show us that there is a whole tradition of science fiction that is really interesting, is really lively. And in, in the case of uh, some of the Chinese stories, in some ways more conservative than, than other traditions. Sure. Uh, we, we I, mean, about I think, yeah, I mean, books like Broken Stars, I mean, they certainly break out uh, further, but I, I think you know there's been. Well, first of all, I think there's, there is, is this role really of trying to talk to the the English language genre and saying we exist and mm. we're influenced by you too, and we have other influences, and we want to be part of this and stop overlooking us. We, you know, when you talk about science fiction, we're part of that too, which is very legitimate. And then I do think that there is overall culturally a, and I don't want to be Pollyannaish about it, a a desire to be aware of more work places from people, you know, books from different places or whatever else. So when Sishin Lu wins a Hugo for best novel, that shows you the genre responding a little bit and being a bit more open to, to work from elsewhere. When Ken Lu does two volumes of Chinese SF for Tor, and those books do well enough that, that they are willing mm. to keep doing them and that everybody lords them and pays attention to them then that sort of shows you that. And, and they, they do absolutely positive things because I was thinking about this a lot because we're not going to talk in detail about either of these books because they're books to be read and reviewed yet. There's uh, Ogatanoe, Donald Ekpeki's Anthology of the Year's Best African Speculative Fiction, which is just out in the world. And then right. coming out next month in India is the Golan's Book of science fiction, uh, South Asian Science Fiction Volume 2 from Taran K. Saint. And we also have the second volume of Israeli science fiction uh, coming out from Sheldon Tittlebaum. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, so, and they, they they share in common all of them. You know, this this desire to get the Western readership to pay attention to. I mean, I mean, more than that. But I mean, the Western there is an element that they want the Western readership to pay attention to all of these writers that provides at a showcase, which is a great thing, and also for um, their own readerships whether they be domestic or outside of their home countries, to pay attention. So the U.S. Best speculative, uh, African Speculative Fiction plainly aims itself at 
you know, readers and writers in on the African continent in those 54 nation states mm. and in the African diaspora and elsewhere in the world. Uh, you would think that was what, what, what they're aiming to. And, and saying, pay attention to these writers. These are people you should be, should be aware of. And what you're, I'm hoping to find with the, say, the South Asian book, since it's the second book, is there's churn in the writers as well. We're seeing vibrancy and change. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing writers uh, who more and more have uh, have recognizable names outside of the anthologies. I mean, every anthology is full of uh, writers that you've never heard of, which is exciting to me. Uh, for, for some people, it might be challenging because you don't know what to expect. But we have uh, an excellent writer whose recent, I guess his first collection of stories just is, is still recent, is Usman Malik, who again is a genre-bending writer. He's in science fiction, horror, and fantasy, and so forth and so on. Um, and you're, you, you write, you mentioned uh, uh, Sujin Liu or, or Shin Shofan or Stanley Chan, um, who has his own new anthology out. I think there's another shift, and I think the other shift has to do with a much broader cultural movement. And that is that the science fiction that I grew up with, and I'm not saying that we grew up with because I'm now older than anybody and everybody else grew up with different science fiction, was, 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 was frankly colonial science fiction. It was yeah. science fiction written from the point of view of the colonists. And when yeah. the issue of colonialism came up in American science fiction, it came up in only one context, pretty much, which was that the American Revolution would be sort of reenacted on the moon, according to Heinlein. In other words, the only hmm. revolution, the only colonized country that Americans ever paid any attention to was America. Now yeah. you have to realize that that, that that breeds one kind of science fiction. It breeds a kind of science fiction which some people have looked at as imperialist, fascist even. Uh, when you start bringing in science fiction from the colonized or from the formerly colonized, um, which includes most of the rest of the world when you think about it, uh, virtually all of Latin American science fiction, all of South American science fiction, all of African science fiction, all of South Asian science fiction, uh, and I'm not talking about just being colonized by Western powers because one of the anxieties you see in South Asian and Korean science fiction is the colonization influences of China and Japan over the centuries. So yeah. the idea of being colonized forces you to rethink classic science fiction tropes. Um, Generation Starship is, is different if you didn't choose to be on the Starship. <laughs> it's very, very true. Are you watching uh, Ted Lasso? I, I've, I've just subscribed to something that will enable me to start, and I just have to figure out how to get to it. It's it's on there's Apple an, Plus here or something. There's an episode where this American uh, f football coach gives the uh, a, a Nigerian footballer, young footballer, this plastic American soldier, little 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 soldier, like used to get uh -huh. in the kids' room, and, 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 and as, as like a gift, right? For various reasons, and the guy returns it, saying, "Look, it has unpleasant tones of colonialism for you know, for me." And you're going, "It's the same same thing." Exactly, it's a, it's it's the same kind of image. It's um, uh, the the sort of thing that um, dominated science fiction for a hundred years. Now, it's not as though science fiction didn't or individual writers didn't address uh, issues of colonialism. You could make a very I, I haven't made an argument that that. Uh, that H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds was about what would what would it feel like for the British to be the subject of colonization, and he didn't have an answer to that other than you know germs, but uh, but by and large, looking at 
the same science fiction themes from the other side of, of this kind of economic history means that those themes get reinvented. Yeah. And alien invasion movies uh, or alien invasion novels, as we've seen from, let's say, Tade Thompson and Nnedi Okorafor, are different when the invasion, quote unquote, takes place in Africa. Very much. I mean, uh, I mean, and, and you can see that going back to Lagoon, for example, which is a exactly. great example of that, right? It's a fabulous book. I mean, I mean, it, it seems clear. I mean, you were touching us again before the conversation that these books, like the themes, the themes that you're getting in books from from China, from South Asia, from uh, Africa, tend to be somewhat different than the themes you're getting out of North America and, and England, which is interesting. That I you're getting so. more stories of colonialism, more stories of racism, more stories of, I mean, and the, the prevail, all prevailing climate change, but you know, those sort of things. And you're saying earlier as well, the, for South Asian, you had felt more stories about overpopulation and the impact of that as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, I think science fiction also emerges from is whatever the culture is concerned about at the moment, which is, uh, it's a cliche. It's the oldest cliche about science fiction. It's not about the future. It's about the present. So we have atomic war science fiction um, in, in, in the 1950s. Um, and then you get atomic war science fiction showing up nowhere else in the world except, guess where? Japan. Becomes a big theme in Japan. Gives rise to kaiju movies. Uh, and, and so forth. Um, the idea of overpopulation was a big yep. deal back in the 60s and 70s. The classic is Stand on Zanzibar. Stand on Zanzibar apparently is still a very relevant novel to people living in India and Pakistan. I could believe it. I could just, just believe it. So anyway, it occurs to me, there's something that I meant to do as a kickoff for this. I mean, every now and again, we talk about awards on the show, don't we, Gary? Yes, we do. Big awards were presented this morning. I don't know if you were paying attention. I saw. Over it. this last weekend, FireCon 2021 ran, and they presented the 2021 Ignite Awards for excellence in, in uh, what was it, to, see, to celebrate the vibrancy and diversity of current and future landscapes of science fiction, fantasy, and horror by represent, representing incredible feats in storytelling and outstanding efforts towards inclusivity in the genre. That's what they're for. And these, in summary, with our congratulations, are. The winners. The best uh, novel was presented to Rebecca Roanhorse for Black Sun, mm -hmm. which came out last year from Saga. The best YA novel was Tracy Dion's Legend Born from Margaret K. McElderry. The best middle grade novel was Clarabelle A. Ortega's Ghost Squad from Scholastic. I have to say, I cheered at this one. Uh, the best novella was Toshi Onyabuchi's Riot Baby, from Riot Toro Baby Kong, which... which I love. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic story. No, the other nominees were all great. Uh, the novelette was awarded to Elliot de Bodard for her uncanny story, The Inaccessibility of Heaven. Uh, C.L. Clark, who had a fabulous novel out earlier this year, uh, uh, won Best Short Story for You Perfect Broken Thing from Uncanny. Gabriel Asensio Morales uh, had, had a poem, The Harrowing Descarador, which won the Best in Speculative Fiction. That was translated by Juan Martinez and was in Strange Horizons. The Critics Award went to Stitch from Stitch's Media Mix, which I shall have to look up, mm -hmm. though I'm aware of all of the other nominees, so it's interesting. The Best Fiction Podcast went to Nightlight Podcast from Tonya, Tonya Ransom. The Best Artist was Odira, Odira Igbokwe, who I recommend people look up. There's links on the uh, Ignite website, and their artwork is fabulous. 
the best comics team, and this might the best gra- comics team, and this I guess best graphic novel per se, and this might uh, interest you was um, Damien Duffy and John Jennings for Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower. Right. Which is great. The best anthology in collected works was Patricia Caldwell, whose Viking anthology of Phoenix Must Burn received the award. And then we had best in creative nonfiction, someone you've heard from before. Uh, Toshi Onyubuchi wrote mm-hmm. an article, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, The Duty of the Black Rider During Times of American Unrest, that was published on Tor.com, which is a stunning piece, Gary. It's genuinely I stunning. want to read that as soon as I saw that list. Uh, I was I was impressed by that. I'm trying to look it up now, but one of the things I wanted to... Um, oh, there's two more I just got to go through before. Okay, go ahead. Go finish the uh, the Ember Award, which I, uh, was presented to Doniel Clayton, and the uh, Community Award went to Publishing Paid Me by L.L. McKinney and the ubiquitous award-winning Tochi Onyubuchi. But anyway, you were saying. Congratulations I to was, everybody and to all of the nominees. I was going to say congratulations to all the nominees because when I was, I did not recognize all of the winners. But when I looked at the nominees for the top categories of novel and novella and, and, and short fiction, all of the nominees were... It was an informative list. I mean, I know that, uh, for example, N.K. Jemison's The City We Became was one of the nominees uh, for novels. Yes. And, As was uh, Haojing Fang's Vagabonds, Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Graham Good Indians, and C.L. Polk's Midnight Bargain, yeah. I mean, that writes, uh, that, that list of finalists by itself is a good example of, 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 I guess, the multiculturalism of what's being recognized in science fiction. Since, yeah. since Nora Jemison was on the list, we should probably mention that Time Magazine this week is yes. named N.K. Jemison as one of the most, 100 most influential people in the world, um, which if I were her, I would probably be hiding out now from people who want to be influenced <laughs> by me. But, uh, but it, it's, I, I do it's, that is true, but, true, but it, I, I do wonder, like, what does that actually mean in material terms? I mean, I know that Nora is... is lauded and justifiably and i know her books are great and i know she's working on film and tv and all of that but what does it mean to be one of the hundred most influential people how do you get ranked i wonder it what it means is and on the essay uh the, interestingly enough the the little short essay i'm sure these things are written by largely by time staffers and they're improved but the short essay about nk jemison was written by stacy abrams uh, mm-hmm. who is also, interestingly enough, a romance writer as well as a, one yes. of America's prominent political organizers. What I think lists like that mean, I lived with lists along these lines for decades when I was a college professor because U.S. News and World Report would always rank the 100 top universities in a ranking that was enormously arbitrary and biased, and I was, I was proud that the university I went to was always in the top 10 in Chicago. My guess is that the real purpose of the 100 most influential people is to show to the world how completely on top of things Time Magazine is. It's not. It's meant to honor the magazine more than the honorees, which does not mean that 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 N.K. Jemison does not deserve that kind of recognition. Uh, the concern I have with with with, with Jemison is similar to the concern I've had, and the concern that that Ursula Le Guin once expressed to me herself, which is you don't want to be the only one. You don't no, want you don't. But, I, but, I, actually, that, it, but that's a good thing. I mean, uh, N.K. Jemison, who is very much her own voice and her own talent and needs to be respected for that and is, mm-hmm. um, is one of a generation, not one, so one individual. Exactly. 
and she, but but she's not she's not a, a monolithic writer either. I mean, the city we became is a complete, uh, large and fascinating departure from her earlier work, and yes. the Broken Earth trilogy was a departure from the Hundred Thousand King. So she's she's stretching herself. She's an excellent writer. I don't mean to uh, to, to to minimize the degree to which she deserves the award. Uh, I wonder after winning three Hugos in a row if if she's in danger of becoming, quote unquote, the face of modern science fiction. Um, uh, maybe, you know, but I mean, sh surely that's sort of a risk you, you, you've got to be willing to take. Oh, no, I mean, I, 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 there are any number of other people who I would not want to take on that role at all. Well, well actually, to, to stop there for a second, that's actually the real point. If you're going to pick someone, if you had to, you know, for a genre who for however long had Robert A. Heinlein as the face of the genre and then whoever else, depending which corner you're looking at, because, right. you know, uh, I'm pretty comfortable having N.K. Jemison as the face of the genre right oh, now. I am too. I, I have no problem with that. And I think, I think one of the things that, uh, that probably Nora would say herself is that she's one writer and she doesn't represent all of the different kinds of writers who write different kinds of science fiction and fantasy because she's a fantasy writer as well. She's, on the list as a writer, not as a science fiction writer. Yeah, that yeah. by itself is an important distinction. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I think Colson Whitehead is on the list also. But the point you made just a second ago, that at one time the face of science fiction was Heinlein. At one time, when I was a kid, the faces of science fiction were Heinlein, Asimov, Asimov and Clark, and maybe Bradbury off to the side because Bradbury never represented anything like they did. You could not name four people today that represent the variety of science fiction. They didn't represent it back then, but they certainly represented the mainstream the of publicity of science fiction. Yeah, what's, yeah. <laughs> they absolutely represent the homogeneity of science fiction. At most, they represented different flavors of story rather right. than, you know, whereas these days, you know, I don't know where I would start in 2021 to come up with a, you know, sort of a, a, a Mount Rushmore of 2021 science fiction, a, a big three or four. Um, well, I mean, and no one would agree either. No, I don't think anybody would. And I think one of the things that um, that made people the face of science fiction in the past uh, were sales figures. I mean, Asimov, Clark, Herbert, uh, I don't know, Bradbury. Bradbury may have never actually made the New York Times bestseller list. But by late in their career, Clark and Heinlein and Asimov were writing these sort of fix-up bestsellers. Uh, Dune became a, a regular feature of the bestseller list. So there were people became the face of science fiction by becoming the face of the science fiction market, becoming yeah. the ones who sold lots and lots of, uh, and that's, that's a little bit like if, if, if you look in a kind of historical sense, that's a little bit like saying Mickey Spillane is more the face of hard boiled fiction than Raymond Chandler. Yeah. Well, I guess, I mean, I guess, okay. Who would I put on the faces of science fiction today? It's almost like it's it's you're going from from N.K. Jemison to um, John Scalzi to Martha Wells to, um, and then there are, there are other names where they, they they sell well for a variety of reasons, but I don't know if they'd get that same thing. I mean, the great example, the, 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 one of the examples would be Austin Scott Card, whose books still sell very well into yeah. schools and everything else but who maybe you wouldn't put on the Mount Rushmore of science fiction in 2021. Well, I don't think you would claim that he represents what science fiction is doing in 2021. I mean, his books no. sell in the same way that Asimov's books still sell. Um, and 
um, the same way that the Dune books still sell. So that, uh, that, that that's, that's kind of a separate issue. That's kind of science fiction as a, a media presence. As soon as I thought about the Foundation books selling well again, I cannot wait to see the absolute puzzlement on the faces of people who watch a few episodes of this TV series and then buy Foundation and start reading it and find out that it's nothing but men talking. Anyway. Yeah, that's not going to go down well. But but anyway, no, I I, I think that today there's not we, uh, there's not any yeah. kind of a monolith of science fiction at all. I would put no. Nettie Okorafor on my list of a kind yeah. of science fiction, uh, which is very energetic and, and multimedia. And I think one of the things we're seeing today is a kind of multimedia presence. Uh, and Nettie is a good example of that with film deals, working on a TV series, working on Marvel Comics, working on uh, Willow Wilson is uh, uh, writing comics as well as novels. I also think this whole concept is much more fluid than it used to be. Yeah. You know, the the whole Heinlein Clark Asimov thing was set in stone for a long, long time. That was a story that science fiction told itself as well. Mm -hmm. These are the whether or not they were or not. I mean, by 1980, none of those writers were really writing their major work anymore. Heinlein was well into his not very good phase, which started in mm -hmm. 1970. Clark produced a few things, but not a lot after 1980. Asimov no. was you know, ringing changes on small corners of the foundation and robot stuff. They were not major creators, really. They were just well-known. Um, now I feel like there's much more flux, which seems very healthy. You know, I feel like you would have, if you'd been asked in 2000 to name the you know, the people who would be these fit for these slots or 2010 or 2015, you'd have different answers. It may be, I mean, I think it's undeniable. I have to get say that NK Jemison has made a contribution to the field that will not be erased or forgotten. But, you know, I couldn't say for sure in 10 years time that she will occupy this, occupy the same position. It won't be somebody else who comes along next. Um, it could very well be, and that's one of the things that uh, I, I think you're right. It's difficult to measure contemporary writers by careers yeah. like those of Asimov and Heinlein, for example, or, or let's say Bradbury. They all began roughly around 1940 and continued roughly into the 70s. So those are uh, 35, 40-year careers. What yes. are the, the, in the 35, 40-year careers we have now, there are some people who I think are, are likely to be pantheonic. Pantheonic? God, that sounds terrible. Uh, Stan, Kim Stanley Robinson has a career that's, what, going close to 40 years now, I would imagine. Longer. Longer, okay. Goes back to the mid, late, early or mid-70s. Um, 1970 was 50 years ago. So, yeah, it would have been more than 40-year career. I, th uh, I think um, Stan Robinson's first stories appeared in maybe around 76 or so is my recollection. Okay, that sounds about right. Um, you know, don't don't sort of set that in stone, Gary. We'll look up. Yeah, no, I'm right. Look at that. Come back to Dixieland came out in '76. Okay. So, so you know, long career. A long, long career, still relevant. Uh, early books still being reprinted. Early books still seeming very relevant. I was looking uh, recently. Tor reprinted the Three Californias trilogy in one huge volume. And even though a lot of the 1980s, 1990s futurism and that is, is, is dated, the books themselves aren't. Most of the issues are still issues. Uh, so that kind of career, 
Uh, I think Greg Bear has had a career that long. And in, in, in kind of the Heinlein, Asimov, Clark axis, there is now a large tributary which continues that. It continues it with with, with some of Bear and Bryn and Benford, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think Scalzi is part of that. It's no longer the Mississippi River, though. It's it's one of many tributaries. And there's another tributary, which... Uh, what would be the tributary that, that uh, N.K. Jemison would belong to? Where does she come from? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I know a lot of what Nettie Okorafor read because I was working with her when she was working on her degree. Uh, so a lot of these writers were familiar with that sure. mainstream tradition, but decided they didn't want to be part of it, or decided they might want to reinvent it from a different perspective. Uh, well, I, mean, is, I, think I think they're changing what the mainstream is. Yeah, that's that's what I mean. There's no longer, I think, a Mississippi River. There's no one no, giant no. Uh, watershed of science fiction. Uh, and I don't think that there's even a dominant one right now. Well, I mean, I, maybe. I mean, I think we, we when we're inside the field, the way you and I are, we get a very distorted view of things. Some things are seen as being high profile and important. And when you talk to people who track sales and what, what the rest of yeah. the world is reading, you find out that it doesn't always map quite the way you expect it does. And it can be surprising. But I certainly think that it's enormously healthy that the kind of work that is getting attention is the kind of work that is. That the city we became, that Black Sun is getting attention, that Stephen uh-huh. Graham Jones is getting the kind of attention he's had the last couple of years. That Sylvia Miranda Garcia you know, I think it's interesting that the long, and it goes back much longer, so probably 10 years or more, you know, the long push in the YA area for um, broader inclusivity in the writers has changed the kind of stories we see there. And so you see a, a very rich, vibrant, diverse kind of, you know, sort of rep- level of representation, what I can tell when I look at there. I don't read as much YA anywhere near as, as I used to, but when I look at it, that's what I see. And you're seeing it in shorter work as well, which is great. Well, and, and, and you're seeing a lot of uh, variety, not only among BIPOC writers, but among, you, you feel uh, there's a, seems to me to be a tradition, maybe because it's what I see when I see YA fiction. Now, I almost think of it as queer fiction because that's what I tend to come across. And mm-hmm. it's, it reinvents some YA issues, classic YA issues, being bullied in school, being an outsider in a new neighborhood, being uncomfortable with your body. It, it, it looks at them from, Looking at that from a career perspective doesn't uh, make it a new theme, but it makes it a reinvented theme. And my argument is that looking at all the classic science fiction themes from different perspectives make them new themes. For mm-hmm. example, we talked about colonialism. Um, the, um, the River Solomon um, novel, An Unkindness of Ghosts, is in many ways structurally a classic starship, uh, generation starship story. But from the point of view, as I said, of the colonized rather than the colonizers, from the point mm. of view of a lower class, it changes mm. the perspective on things. Um, that's what I mean about the great science fiction themes is that they can be reshaped into completely opposite rhetorical structures of what they originally were. Uh, River Solomon did one thing with the Generation Starship. Uh, years ago, Molly Gloss did something completely different with the Generation Starship in the mm-hmm. Dazzle of Day. Kim Stanley Robinson, the hard SF uh, descendant, 
completely attempted to demolish the idea of the generator. In other words, that's a science fiction idea which is not over simply because it's being redone in generations, yeah, yeah. but because it gets reinvented and becomes a completely different story. It's no different from the Western dealing with the outsider who comes into town and is mistrusted by the locals because he's wearing a badge or something. Or, or, or mystery novels. Uh, all, all the Raymond Chandler novels had pretty much close to the same plot, but they were all very different. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think what science fiction is simply discovering that it can manipulate things in a literary way, which some of the older writers figuring if once a formula was established, you couldn't do much with it. Um, even, uh, even Harry Harrison was trying to undermine the um, Generation Starship decades ago with a novel called Captive Universe, which is partly it's a spaceship, which is partly split into an Aztec society and partly, <coughs> I think, into a Puritan society or something. The only reason I mention that is to add a footnote that there have always been subversive science sure. fiction writers. And, uh, and Harrison was one of them. Harrison loved to subvert the tradition that he was writing and as he was writing and he wrote parodies of space operas parodies of generation ships parodies of overpopulation stories and so forth and so on let me segue a little i mean we've just talked about a lot of different things in in, in, in not a great deal of depth but glancing around we're, we're sitting here as you mentioned in september we're three quarters of the way through the year and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but how are you feeling about the year right now in, in fiction? Do you feel like you've got a, a, a bit of an idea of the shape of it when you think about how things are going? I'm feeling almost overwhelmed. I'm feeling there's a tremendous amount of stuff I want to read that I know I won't get to. And I don't know if this is because things are coming out more. I don't think more books are not being published. I'm, I'm sure I don't have any figures on that. But the sense is that there are uh, a lot of major writers doing a lot of major work in, um, in, in a lot more prolific ways, I guess. Uh, yeah. you, mentioned, I mean, you mentioned getting the new Colson Whitehead novel, which is not even a fantastic no, novel no, no, in any way. No, no, no. But I, I'd, I'd love to have a chance to read that. So uh, yeah. the sense I have is that it's a, uh, there's a lot of stuff this year. A lot of the stuff I've read is pretty good. Uh, a lot of it is excellent. But there seems to be more solid work. I guess put it this way: more things that I want to read this year than there have been in the last couple of years. That's that's good. I mean, have you yet? I mean, often when you're reading as a as a reviewer, as a commentator, one book will float up in your mind for the year as being the one that stands out. I mean, to me, for you know, sort of just twenty twenty, it was it was Ministry of the Future. Yeah. Um, in twenty twenty one, do you yet feel we've seen that book? That's a good question. Um, since, uh, thinking back to the beginning of 2021, of course, means thinking back a full year because that's when I was reading uh, those things. Um, I would have to give some thought to that. Yeah, that might be a little um, unfair. Well, it's, it's unfair. I mean, one of the books I mentioned um, uh, to you earlier simply because I uh, tweeted about it that now strikes me as being more important possibly than I thought was, was Lily Yu's um, On Fragile Waves. Mm -hmm. uh, that struck me as being an important novel. Uh, a novel which I'm, I'm thinking of things that just pop back into mind as things that I really liked. Um, in terms of science fiction playing with the general culture 
or playing with history. I like Niveau's novel, The uh, Chosen and the Beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. I thought the more I think about it, I'm, uh, and this is completely subjective, the more I think about it, M. Ricketts, the shipbuilder of Bell Ferry, may be her best work. I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very strange. That's because it's a writer that I followed who's finally, who's not finally, but has uh, has done something at novel length that, that we all knew she was capable of. And then, then I also think of writers that I've seen a lot of uh, during yeah. the past year that um, – that seem to be doing some of the best, most interesting, most personal work. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about Lobby Titter on here. We've talked. Yeah. I've read a couple of uh, Daryl Gregory um, novels, which are, are are both, I think, more personal. Uh, I'm of new writers that I'm enamored of. Alex Harrow is certainly one of them, and she's followed up. Uh, Spindle Splintered certainly is a reasonable novella length follow up to reasonable and outstanding, thoughtful, uh, funny follow-up to her first two novels. So maybe the next one, Amira Mended. And and the next one is titled what? Amira Mended. Amira Mended, which I've not seen yet. Uh, Here's a writer I didn't know anything about before two years ago, and now I consider myself a follower. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you look at that. I mean, I was thinking, what would I call, you know, my standout science fiction novel or fantasy novel of 2021 so far? Probably a desolation called Peace by Arcadia Martin. Yeah, okay. Which leans strongly into my, my my preferences and tastes, but it talks about sort of how vibrant the year is, which you're you're saying mm-hmm. that we're left, you know, almost having to look at shelves to pull out the titles to remind ourselves, not because there isn't work to remember, but because there's so much. I mean, exactly. think about it. We had the we had the first full length novel from uh, P. Jelly Clark earlier this year, A Master right. of Gin, which is a a good strong book. We had um, Sorrowland by River Solomon, which is fabulous harrowing book uh and well worth worth you know chasing chasing down uh i've just started reading saad hussein's new novel which is coming out in december right um, and i think uh, cyber mage and so there's, there's lots of stuff and there, there are things that i uh have not uh there are things i think also that are encouraging signs of this kind of uh mixture this sort of blending between mainstream and uh, and science fiction, because there's there's always there have always been in in given years novels that uh, usually dystopian novels, uh, Station Eleven, for example, in Miss Emily St. John Mendel. Now it seems there's more of a dialogue going on, uh, and, and and this is probably not even a defensible statement, but I'll make it anyway. My sense from knowing some people who knew people who had written. Uh, science fiction and tried to pretend it wasn't science fiction. The, the er Margaret Atwood attitude of Margaret Atwood is now outgrown. This time around, you're finding writers, I'm thinking of a novel particularly that I, that I liked, uh, Appleseed by Matt Bell. Uh, mm-hmm. who seems, it, it was pretty much received as a mainstream novel. It was received probably in that same kind of liminal space that Richard Powers' novels are received in. And it was pretty clear that this guy had, had paid attention to science fiction, had thought his way through the science fiction elements of it. I believe he even teaches a, a class in speculative fiction somewhere. So there's a sense in which um, the, 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 those writers in the mainstream who find themselves in science fiction territory no longer have people coming at them with pitchforks, but people saying, we'll take a look at your science fiction book from a science fiction perspective. And I don't know how other science fiction readers have yeah. seen it. Um, yeah. But... But my sense is that uh, 
that those barriers are breaking down as well. Okay. Interesting, interesting times. And it's interesting because one of the things that comes up uh, as a reviewer, and it happens with uh, a, a genre-oriented magazine like Locus, is that my sense is that we don't get sent um, all the novels by Richard Powers or Shiguro or uh, or other mainstream writers. Sometimes no, we don't always have to kind of hunt them out. We have to hunt them out, but some. But I think the strategy of uh, the strategy of ten years ago, or fifteen, or twenty years ago which was essentially, if you have a mainstream novelist or somebody with a mainstream sales record who's written a science fiction novel, you have to do everything you can in the publicity to not make it look like a science fiction novel. I think that marketing myth has begun to evaporate. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's a healthy sign. Yeah. (sighs) Oh, Gary, Gary, Gary. So so much to read, so much to do. I'm coming up with a busy time. What were we going to say? I was going to say the other thing, which does strike me, we have a lot of media to start paying attention to uh, mm-hmm. with Foundation. and do- The other question is, we've just talked about how many terrific science fiction novels and stories have come out in the last couple of years. And you mentioned A Desolation Called Peace. Uh, I'm thinking of, uh, we, we've, we've talked about N.K. Jemison. All these terrific things coming out, some of which do have uh, movie and TV yeah. deals. Why are the big ticket items this fall based on 50 or 70 or 80 year old materials? Beats the hell out of me. Part of it, I think, is some things take a long time to get up because of enthusiasm. Some of it is Hollywood conservatism when it comes to wanting you know, established pro- projects. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they've made Dune again. They've made I was going to say, Dune, Dune is not an established project. Dune is an established failure. Dune is something that is defeated. I don't understand it myself, no. Neither of these are projects I would have expected to see come out or do well. And not only that, but they have, at least Foundation has the least glamorous title I've ever seen for a TV miniseries, because it's one thing if you're publishing a series of stories in in, in a pulp magazine to call it Foundation. It's the least glamorous title I've ever seen for a science fiction movie. (laughs) Well, I guess they're they're doing their best to make it look glamorous, though. They are. They could have called it Blazing Galaxies or something. Come on. Blazing Galaxies. I've got to make Isaac Asimov's Blazing Galaxies. I don't see that at all. I don't see that at all. Uh, This is all falling down, Gary. I think we should wind up. This is nuts. Now that I think about it, there was was, – somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the original Ace reprints, mass market reprints of, uh, I think, Foundation and Empire, was retitled by Donald Walheim, something like The Man Who Upset the Universe. Even that sounds more interesting than Foundation and Empire. I do think it's time to wind up. Okay, we need to wind down. We're going to get, we're going to get cranky and start ranting. Crank, get cranky. No, uh, I have to say that next time we'll make sure we have a guest to, to make us behave better. Absolutely, and we have lots of guests that we're overdue to invite. One of the things that we have to – well, one of the things, honestly, though, with you in Australia and me here and some of our potential guests being in Europe or Africa, um, timing is complicated. So we're working on it, folks. Yes. Well, I think, yes, I think the most complicated I've looked at lately was 
uh, talking to someone in Nigeria, and that does look genuinely complicated. That, that was that was one of the simple simpler things about the ten minutes with things. Yeah, this exactly. Was a, it was it was two two you were trying to sort of match, not triangulate three, but we shall work it out. But anyway, it's great to talk to you this weekend. There's lots to read, lots and lots, I'm and lots of good stuff. And yeah. And until the next time, then this has been the Cood Street Podcast. That really was a ramble, wasn't it? Well, we had the whole chunk about anthologies in the middle of it, so there's something. We'll pretend. We'll pretend it's more focused than it was. It was probably focused. Ooh.